found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you ever meet somebody who says, well, I'm not interested in confessing Jesus, say, one day you will, but it'll be too late. You see, everybody, every cult leader, every person that's an agnostic, every atheist is one day going to bow down, not in choosing Jesus, but in acknowledgement that Jesus was the only way to God, and he was the rightful heir to everything that God gave him. And one day, every knee is going to bow and admit, you're right, God, I'm wrong. I deserve to be in hell because of what I did to your son and what I rejected that your son did. I deserve what I've gotten. You're right. Every knee is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. The great thing is you get a chance to do it in this life. Now, I don't know if y'all are awake or not, but I've been having church this morning, and some of you are dead as yesterday's hammer. Hello? Your mind may be on spring break, but your body is here, so let's get both of them together, all right? Everybody awake? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Man, I felt like I was at a wake while I was reading that scripture. thought the dead in Christ were here. Oh, we're about to have a Presbyterian service. Sorry. We'll edit that. <laughs> Alex is making notes. Acts 20 and verse 22, And now, be behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. In the message this morning, in the message tonight, we're going to cover chapters 20 through 26. You don't need to bring a supper tonight. We'll get through in plenty of time. But we're going to cover a lot of ground in the next two messages. The reason being that Paul is moving toward Rome. He is moving toward the culmination of his ministry. Everything in Acts has now been moving to this since Acts chapter 13 is moving to where we are. Paul is about to leave, and they will not see him again. But he's not going to leave and retire and rest on his laurels. Paul is leaving to take the, not the easy road, but the hard road. Because of his commitment, because of his love for God, because of his love for the gospel, he's about to go to Rome. And he knows that bonds and afflictions await him there. Trouble is brewing. Now, Paul had a clear message. If you look at verse 24, the message was the grace of God. And if you look at verse 25, the message was the kingdom. 
Paul and Peter and the apostles preached the same message to Jews and Gentiles. The coming of Messiah, of Christ. And in preaching that message, they created a division. You had to choose. You had to decide. Is Jesus who he says he is, or just another preacher, or another teacher, or a good prophet, or a good moral example, of which he left us none of those choices, by the way. Jesus claimed emphatically to be the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the only way to get to heaven. And now Paul is preaching this gospel, and the majority have resisted him, as they always will. Just like the Jews of that day, there are people who say, we will not have this man rule over us, and yet one day he will. So I want to talk a little bit about obeying God's will regardless of what it costs you. Because there's a tendency in us, because we like to be comfortable, to obey God's will if it is convenient or if it fits our plans and our agenda and our ideas. But obedience to God's will is not something where we get to pick and choose like we go through a cafeteria line and say, well, I want that, but I don't want that. When you obey God, you obey all that he says to all that you are supposed to be. And so the first thing is obeying God's will is a heart matter. It's a heart matter. You and I have to have a heart to do the will of God. It has to be within us, a desire within us to do God's will in our lives. And although Paul was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that's very clear from Acts chapter 9. Yet he could not release himself from his love for his Jewish brethren. And he felt compelled to go to Jerusalem, which would set up everything else that happens in the book of Acts. James Calvert was a missionary to the cannibals in the Fiji Islands. And on his way there, the captain of the ship came to him and asked him if he understood where he was going, that to go there he would lose his life. To go there he would sacrifice the lives of those who were with him. And Calvert turned to the ship's captain and said, We died already. We died to ourselves. We died to our plans. We've died already. We just go to obey what God has said that we must do. And that is the call of God on our lives, to die to ourselves. Now, we're in the middle of Paul's missionary journey. If you notice the front of your notes, you've got an outline of the reactions of the people in the first journey and the second missionary journey. The, the third missionary journey covers chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21, the first part of chapter 21. And Paul, in this time, if you look back up at chapter 19 and verse 21, you will see that he makes his first reference to going to Rome. Paul had in his heart and in his mind two things. I've got to get to Jerusalem, and I want to go to Rome. I've got to go to Jerusalem and take this offering that I've been taking for the church in Jerusalem. I've got to go see them. I want to build a bridge. I want to make sure everything's moving in the right direction. But ultimately, I want to leave Jerusalem and go to Rome. Now, he did not go to Rome the way he intended to go. But he still ended up going. And so we have Paul with a heart for Rome. By the way, there are three key cities in the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome. All the other places that are mentioned are insignificant really compared to those three cities because everything hinges on what happens in those three cities, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome. And the book of Acts is not so much a book of places as it is the people in those places. 
the people that Paul encounters, some of them believers, other unbelievers, are remarkable stories in the book of Acts of Paul's interaction with people and the people that he met. And by the way, some godly women that he would run into and, and they would begin to help start churches. And, and it was just all kinds of interactions and relationships. But those three cities are the key to the book of Acts. Secondly, God's will can cause some to misunderstand. Now, when you do what your heart tells you to do, some people are not going to understand. Does everybody know that? Everybody understand? When you do what your heart tells you to do, some people don't understand. Sometimes with some of you, it's with your family. Some of you, 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 you think you're called to ministry, and you go to your family, and they think you're crazy. Some of you, it's with your friends. Some, it's with your coworkers. Some it's with even with other Christians who don't want to go that far because if they go that far, then that's going to make them look bad if they don't go with you. And, and so you're going to have to decide if you're going to live the life that God wants you to live, that you're going to be misunderstood. Now again, Paul's on this journey, and Paul knows and everybody else knows that going to Jerusalem is going to bring nothing but trouble. Now if Paul was a 21st century Christian, he wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. He would have gone to Panama City because then he could just sit out on the beach and have fun. Jerusalem is trouble. Jerusalem is a problem. Jerusalem, there are people there waiting to trap him. But he feels he needs to go. Look at chapter 21. We're going to look at some verses in chapter 21. Chapter 21 and verse 3. I remember we talked about the fact that he stopped by and talked to the Ephesian elders and leaders. And then he landed at Tyre in verse 4. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Verse 8, and they came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now you remember Philip the Evangelist. Philip was also uh, in Acts chapter 6, one of the first deacons. He was the one that was, uh, had the great revival in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch. Same Philip. What we find out all the way toward the end of the book is that Philip the Evangelist has now settled in Caesarea. And he started a family. And so they come to the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, and we were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we, anytime you see we in the book of Acts, it's Luke was there personally. He saw this happen. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now I want you to look at the connection. Verse 4, they kept telling Paul through the Spirit, and in verse 11, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Now there are good and godly commentators and preachers who disagree on what this means. And it's not an issue of fellowship. There are some who say that his insistence on going to Jerusalem was not God's will, that Paul stepped out of the will of God to go to Jerusalem. 
There are others that say that he knew that he needed to go there. And so there's this debate that comes over this passage about whether Paul was listening to good counsel and good advice and whether Paul was so headstrong that he thought, I'm going to go, I don't care what anybody says. Some have tied this to what Martin Luther said during one of the defenses of his faith when Luther said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Now here's what happened. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem, and he wanted to get to Jerusalem before Passover. Why? Because Jews from all over the world would be gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, and there would be converted people there. There would be new Christians there. He wanted to have an opportunity in that environment of people from all over that part of the world coming into Jerusalem to share the gospel with them again. He wanted to give them the opportunity when he could have the greatest impact. And so he heads toward Jerusalem, trying to get there in time for the Passover to present Christ. Now, if you want to hold your place in Acts chapter 21 and turn a few pages over to Romans chapter 9, you will find out why Paul did this and why I think Paul was making the right decision, although he didn't understand fully the consequences of it. Acts chapter 9 in verse 1. If you read Acts 9-1, you understand why he was committed to going to Jerusalem. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, he's talking about the Jews. He's saying, I wish that God would condemn me to hell if I could get them to be saved. I wish that I could be a curse for my brethren who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. What Paul was saying is simply this in Acts chapter 21 and in Romans chapter 9. I have a great burden for my people. I want to ask you, because I know the answer in my own heart. Have you ever wanted anybody saved so bad you were willing to say that God could send you to hell if they could get to heaven? That's Paul's heart. And before we criticize Paul not listening to these people, we need to think, do we have the heart for our lost friends like Paul had for his lost nation? Because that was his heart. That's what he believed. That was his commitment. And my, this is just my personal opinion. You don't have to go to seed on this. But my personal opinion is that phrase, through the Spirit, and then when Agabus says, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying, is what they are doing is they are affirming to him that he is headed for trouble. That the Holy Spirit has told them trouble is coming. And that if he goes, he's going to meet trouble. That he's going to be bound over to the Gentiles. And because of their great love for Paul, they don't want him to go. They don't want him to be hurt. They don't want him to suffer anymore. They don't want him to be persecuted. He's already been beaten. He's already been shipwrecked. He's already gone through trials and problems and persecutions and run out and ridiculed and lowered down in a basket. I mean, all this stuff has happened. They're just saying, hey, enough's enough. Paul, don't do it. 
We need you. And so you read when he says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he's saying is, you know, I'd a whole lot better be, rather be with Christ, but it's beneficial to you if I stay here. There's this, always a struggle between what we want and what God wants. What we think is best and what God thinks is best. How we see God working and how we assume we would like him to work. And always, always we would want him to take us down the easy road. Now here's the question. Was Paul missing God's will in going to Jerusalem? The answer is, I don't know. And you don't know. Because the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about it. We'll know when we get to heaven. But we do know that whether it was the perfect will of God or the providential will of God, that God allowed him to go and God let him go and God did get him to Rome. We don't know, but I do know this. Paul was willing to pay the price. Look at chapter 21 and verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I mean, it's hard enough for Paul as it is. Nobody volunteers for persecution. Nobody volunteers to suffer. He says, you're breaking my heart. This is killing me. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that tells you about Paul's commitment. He says, it's killing me that you're feeling this way, but I'm willing to do whatever God says. I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and die if necessary. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. I I remember when uh, Terry and I moved to uh, Kansas City. And uh, we'd grown up, and she'd grown up in Georgia and in Mississippi, and I'd grown up in Mississippi all my life. I know where the squirrel revival happened in Pascagoula that Ray Stevens sang about. I know the church. I can take you to it. It's a crazy church. I, and I, anyway, and, and so we got through with college, and uh, we were in a transition time. We went home to live with my parents for uh, about a month or so, and I got a call one morning. I'd woken up by a phone call, and it was uh, the president of New Orleans Seminary, who at the time was Landrum Level. And he said, Michael, he said, I'd like to offer you a full scholarship to come to New Orleans. Free housing, free tuition, free... I mean, and it was like 7.15 in the morning. Now, I'm like Ron Dunn. You know, if God wants me to see the sunrise, he'll put it at 10 o'clock when everybody can enjoy it. So, you know, I, I'm not a morning person. I get up in the morning because I have to, and I have a dog that starts barking at 6.30. So I have to, I, I do get up in the morning, but I, I'm not awake in the morning, but I could tell what I was being told. And so he says, we've got all this for you. And I said, well, thank you very much. And we didn't take it. Terry and I prayed about it. We believe that God was sending us to Kansas City. Now, by the way, the seminary in Kansas City was not a conservative seminary at the time. It is now. It wasn't then. I had a professor there who said that any book written today that you can buy in any Lifeway bookstore is just as inspired as any book of the Old Testament. I had a professor who told me there wasn't a personal devil, that there might be some evil force out there in the universe somewhere, but we know nothing about it. He had obviously never heard of the mafia in Kansas City who had just blown up a guy and his body parts went three blocks. I guess he, I don't know how he explained that away. But we went. Not one person, not one said, smart move, great idea. 
You need to go there. We moved from Pascagoula, Mississippi to Kansas City, Missouri with $425 and a U-Haul truck and a Vega, I might add, which you got to be in God's will to drive a Vega because you have to do that by faith. Well, the morning we're supposed to leave, I go to the dentist, find out I've got to get some cavities filled. So now I've got that expense. Well, my dad says he'll take care of it. My car won't start. The Vega won't start. So the guy goes to tow it, doesn't lock the wheel. He turns the corner, slams the whole front panel of my car into another car. Now I'm driving to Kansas City with a dented car that's one year old. Got a big, huge dent in the side of it. We get below Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The engine in the U-Haul truck blows up. Falls out, craters. We have to take everything off of one U-Haul truck to another U-Haul truck. I mean, we're not, we're not even to the midpoint in the state yet. And the devil's going, you're an idiot. We get to Kansas City. We now have less than $400 in the bank. I call my mom and dad. They say, you can use our gas credit card for a while. I say, thank you, Jesus. They give me a little bit of money, and then I pay $400 to find Terry a job with a job search. She ends up working in downtown Kansas City in an office building where prostitutes and pimps hung out on the outside of the building. She had to ride a bus 20 miles to get to work. I had to take her to the bus. Our car wouldn't start in the winter. I'd have to go out in the winter and jumpstart it with a screwdriver off the starter every morning, and it didn't get above zero for about three weeks. Seminary was terrible. Our housing was terrible. Everything was terrible, and I want you to know it was the will of God. It was. Because it was at Kansas City that I first heard Ron Dunn preach. It was in Kansas City when I began to understand that there was more to the Christian life than cookies and Kool-Aid. And it was in Kansas City that I met Charlie Draper, who eventually called me to be the youth minister at his church. And I can look back on Kansas City, and in the 18 months that we were there, I can tell you that every significant spiritual relationship in my life started in Kansas City. It wasn't the seminary that I was there for. It was the people that I met that I was there for. I mean, I got to tell you, my mother-in-law said, I'll never come see you. She did. I've never said, I told you so. I'm a nice son-in-law. <laughs> and I'm hoping to stay in the will. So, Everybody thought we were crazy. Everybody I knew, every friend I had, went either to Southern Seminary or New Orleans. Why in the world would I go off to Kansas City? God told me to. And sometimes when you do the will of God, you're misunderstood, and somebody's going to look at you and say, you're crazy. Why would God want you to do that? Because they think that God's will is always easy and comfortable. And it's not. I can remember times, listen, our first winter in Kansas City, we did not have a heavy coat. I had a windbreaker. Remember those old vinyl-looking windbreakers? I had a windbreaker. Now, you're talking Kansas City winds and, and two degrees at night. Terry had a, a leather jacket, an imitation leather jacket that we bought for $35 after it was already winter, and, and it didn't have any lining in it. 
I mean, we lived a whole winter, and we, about, we just about froze to death, and we almost starved. There were times when we had nothing to eat, and somebody would call and say, hey, we're going to make pizza. Can you come over and eat? And we would go over, and we thought we were at the biggest steakhouse in the world. I mean, we thought this is a buffet, man. You mean we get two pieces? And there's a salad to go with it? I mean, we were, we were ecstatic. But we were misunderstood. And you always will be if you follow God's will. Thirdly, obeying God's will will lead to opposition. There were legalistic Jews who wanted to, the Judaizers who wanted to stop Paul because they didn't believe in being saved by grace. They wanted to bring the law into the church. And so in verse 17, initially, Paul gets a good response in Jerusalem. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to meet James, and all the elders were present. And after he'd greeted them, he began to relate one by one, or item by item is literally what that says, the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. But if you continue reading in the chapter, you will find that there was opposition brewing. There's glorifying God and there's opposition. Ron Dunn used to say good and evil run on parallel tracks and they normally arrive about the same time. Here's opposition brewing and considerable numbers are accusing him of telling the Gentiles to forsake the law of God. And so the leadership of the church begins to do what I call peace at any price Christianity. Paul, don't, 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 don't do some things that you're doing. We, we hear some things that, that bother us, and, and we're concerned. Let, let's not offend these Judaizers. Let's not offend these legalists. Let's make sure everything's okay. Here, here's the phrase. It's, it's not in the text, but here's the phrase I think they used. I think they said, Paul, we're concerned. And there are many people who are concerned. If I had a dollar for everybody that told me, I know people who are concerned, I'd be a rich man. I wouldn't, I, you know, man, I could fund the lottery. Not that I would, but I could. If I ever, if I ever won the lottery, I'd pay off Sears and go to McDonald's. But uh. And so here you have these people, and they're misrepresenting Paul. They misunderstand his message, and they malign his motives. Now, oftentimes I, I get questions from pastors, you know, how do, how do you deal with people just, I mean, I know guys, and their, their office door is one person right after another. One person, they, they got a gripe, they got a complaint, they got something else. And I said, I can tell you how to handle it, but you don't want to do it. No, we really we want to try to. I can tell you how to handle it, but you don't want to do it. No, we really want to know how to do it. I, I can tell you, but you don't want to do it. No, please. Okay, I'm going to tell you. You ask them three questions. Question number one: What did God tell you this morning in your quiet time? Question number two: Where are you serving in this church and using your spiritual gifts? And question number three: Who's the last person you witnessed to, and when was it? And I said, if you ask them those three questions, their concerns going to go out the windows because they're going to be backpedaling the whole way out the door. I said, now, if they can answer all three of those questions, you need to listen to them because God may have sent them to talk to you. But, you know, there are always going to be people, folks, in your life. I don't care who you are, whether you're a pastor or you own a business, there's always going to be some. We're concerned. 
The question is, are they contributing? Because if they're contributing and they're adding value to what you're doing, that's one thing. If they're just griping, that's something else. You need to learn to distinguish between the two. Paul is misunderstood. Now he's getting opposition. And then he, it, Paul does something we don't understand why he does this, but in verses 23 through 26, he, he compromises. He, he, he begins to act like a Jew again. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says that Paul was merely living up to his own stated policy. 1 Corinthians 9.19 says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. To the Jews I become as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those under the law as under the law, though not, by my, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, Paul may have been following the law of love and trying to do whatever he could to build bridges, but whatever he did, it backfired. And these Jews from Asia, which would be from Ephesus, these people that have been hounding them, these people that started a riot, they show up and they begin to imply some things. In fact, what they accuse Paul of, now this is a funny accusation, they accuse Paul of anti-Semitism. They say he's against Jews. Paul's not. Paul loves them. Paul's willing to give his life for them. But they're hounding him and they're following him. And what Paul did, Paul did not teach the Jews to abandon their traditions. He did teach the Gentiles that they were not subject to Jewish traditions. That they didn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Paul did teach that and he taught it without apology. And he was right in doing so. And in Acts chapter 15, the church council confirmed that that was true. And so Paul is merely following what, what he's been doing all along. But then now they're attacking him. And here's what they're saying. They see Paul walking down the street with a Gentile. Now, you want to talk about ultimate racism. They see Paul walking down the street with a Gentile, and this is what they say. If he'll walk down the street with a Gentile, he'll bring a Gentile into the temple. Well, they didn't want a Gentile in the temple, although they had the court of the Gentiles, because it was in the court of the Gentiles that the money changers were ripping people off, and Jesus had already cleaned that up once, but they were already back in business. Now, this is some 30 years later. And so they are threatened. And so in verse 27, they began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. In verse 30, then all the city was provoked and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. Now folks, mark it down. There's nothing worse than a hot-headed legalist. They are the meanest people on the face of the earth. Because it's their way or no way. There's no grace. There's no room for disagreement. Everybody's got to do it the same way. Everybody's got to look the same, act the same, dress the same, believe the same. Everybody's got to check all the same boxes, and that's legalism. That's not the gospel. The gospel makes us unique. We are different. You are different than I am, but we are part of a body that works together and cooperates together. Why? Because of the grace of God that allows me to love your uniqueness 
and to love your differences and for you to love mine, hopefully. And all the little quirks that we have, we learn to love one another in that. And the legalist said, no, 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 everybody's got to do the same thing. You know, I, I can remember growing up, I can remember hearing little old ladies go up to the minister of music and saying, we didn't sing the third verse. Ma'am, we didn't sing the third verse. That hymn has four verses. We're supposed to sing all four verses of that hymn. All four. We didn't sing the third verse. If I had known then what I know now, I'd have reminded them that song actually has 12 verses, and you can't stand up long enough to sing that. <laughs> These boxes that we get in, and it brings opposition. And then, in the opposition, it demands a faithful witness. They seize Paul. They were going to kill him, but a Roman guard comes up. And on the steps of the Roman barrack, here's a guy who has been beaten and abused. Here's a guy who's gone through one thing after another. And Paul is about to, they're trying to kill him. And Paul turns to this Roman guard and says, hey, you mind if I share my testimony? And he's sharing his testimony that made him want to kill him. And the Roman guard shows favor toward Paul. And in verse 21, Paul begins to tell his testimony, and they're listening, and everything's fine until he gets to verse 21. Actually, he didn't know it was verse 21. We made it that, but he's telling his story. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now, let me tell you what verse 21 and verse 22 is. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, this is the final rejection of Jesus as Messiah. This is the final rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Paul had one more chance at the time of Passover to say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they rejected him. They said, not only do we reject Christ, we don't want anybody that preaches him to live. And so they wanted to kill Paul. And all of this has been building up now, remember, since Acts chapter 13. And chapter 22 is key for two reasons. First of all, it marks the pinnacle of Jewish hatred for Paul. It marks the pinnacle of Jewish hatred for Paul and his message and their rejection of Christ. Secondly, it was the event that opened the door to Rome. Because when Paul appeals on the basis of his Roman citizenship, Everything changes, and the, all that's been happening now begins to change, and everything begins to move toward Rome. And if you'll see the, in your outline, chapter 23, he goes before the Sanhedrin, chapter 24, before Governor Felix, chapter 25, before Governor Festus, chapter 26, before King Agrippa, and in chapter 27, he's sent to Rome. Now, there are three times, and we're going to talk about this tonight, there are three times that Paul shares his testimony, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. Paul gives his testimony, and they're listening to his testimony until he mentions Gentiles. Now, for us, they'll listen to us talk about God, and they'll listen to us talk about our church until you say Jesus is the only way, and then they're going to have to make a decision. You see, this word inflamed them, and so what happened to Paul is what always happened. Some accept, some reject. Now, I want you to listen very carefully for the next few moments because I don't want you to misquote me. I don't mind if you quote me, but I don't want you to misquote me. 
And you, there are a couple of things that I want you to write down, and as you, you'll hear them and you'll know what it is. Number one, salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. Now, there are two statements under that. Number one, you don't become a Christian when you feel like it. Unless the Holy Spirit calls you, you can't come. You don't become a Christian when you feel like it. You don't become a Christian when you decide, I think I'll just be a Christian today. That means that you had something to do with your salvation. God has to convict you that you need salvation. Secondly, you don't decide for Christ on your own. Now let me give you two scripture references. Romans 3.11 No man, and it could say woman, seeks after God. No man seeks after God. And Ephesians 2.8 and 9 It is by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God lest any man should boast. Now, while conversions are different, some of you were saved as children, some were saved as adults, some were saved uh, in the church, some were saved from outside the church, but conversion, wherever you were, whenever it happened, was a work of God. Whether it was a Timothy experience of growing up in a godly home or a Paul experience, a dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ, it is a work of God from beginning to end. Now, I'm, I'm really going to mess with your mind here for just a second, but I want you to stay with me, all right? I don't believe man, oh, I'm about to get some of you. I don't believe that man really has what we call a free will from a theological standpoint. I believe man has freedom of choice. Man has freedom of choice to choose what he's going to do for a living. Man has freedom of choice to do what he's going to do with his life, for who he's going to marry, for what he's going to wear, for where he's going to work. He's got freedom of choice, what he's going to drive. That, that's freedom of choice. But when it comes to salvation, the lost person comes to God when the Spirit of God quickens and awakens their heart. And see, if we don't understand that, then we don't understand that man, a man who is dead is not free to do anything. Jesus said, Paul said, you're dead in trespasses and sin. Now, if you go to a cemetery today, you can talk to that dead person all you want to. They're not going to respond. But one day, a trumpet's going to sound, and dead people are going to come out of the grave just like that because the Spirit of God quickens that dead body, and they rise up from that grave and meet Jesus in the air. Now listen, a dead person can't respond. You can talk to him, you can cuss him, you can offer him money, you can applaud him, you can brag on him, or you can criticize him. He doesn't care. He's dead. It doesn't mean anything to him. Dead people can't respond. Dead people can't make choices. Dead people can't choose to become alive. Is everybody okay? Dead people don't choose to become alive. Nobody's walking down the street of Albany, Georgia today saying, I think today I'm going to choose to be alive. They're dead in trespasses and sin. How do they come out of that dead place and get to what we do call free will? It is when they are confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then the decision has to be made. Now, I've heard the truth. They're dead personally. God breathed into their bodies 
a living soul. They're dead spiritually, and the Holy Spirit has to quicken them and awaken them if they're ever going to be saved because salvation is all of God. I agree with what Ron Dunn said years ago in this church. I don't think anybody's ever been saved that hadn't been prayed for. That's why we need to pray for the lost by name. That's why when we put names on the altar of lost people, that's why the thousand names that are in our prayer ministry of lost people, that's why they need to be prayed for by name because we need to ask God to initiate in heaven an action that puts the Holy Spirit into work in that person's life so that they'll listen to the gospel and hear the gospel and receive what God has for them. Otherwise, we're talking to brick walls. They're dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. And why do we preach? Why do we witness? Why do we share? So that the dead have an opportunity to come to life. That's why we do it. Because we want the dead to come to life. And when we do all of that, some people choose to remain dead and some choose to come to life. But it is our responsibility to do what Paul did. Put it out there where they can understand it. Tell them the truth, even if they don't want to hear it. Be willing to be misunderstood. Be willing to be persecuted. Now, if you look at Paul's testimony, you'll see what he did. Paul didn't just say, well, uh, uh, I, I, was, I was lost, and then I got saved, and, and I've been happy ever since. That's a lie. <laughs> you hadn't. I saw you last week. You weren't happy. Don't, don't lie when you tell your testimony. Look at what Paul did. First of all, he used apologetics, chapter 22 and verse 1. Hear my defense. He used apologetics. Secondly, he gave his testimony in verses 3 through 11. He told his story. What happened to him? This is what I was like before I was saved. This is how I got saved. This is what God did to me because I was saved. Then he gave his commission, verses 12 through 21. This is what God called me to do. This is the call of God on my life. And then there's the rejection of his message in chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. Now, why did they reject him? I can give it to you in one word pride. The reason people don't get saved is they're too proud to admit they're wrong. They're too proud to admit they need a Savior. They're too proud to admit they need help. They're too proud to admit that they're hopeless. They're too proud to admit that they're dead. And so two closing thoughts. First of all, to lost people. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It also says in Romans that nobody who's believed in Jesus has ever been disappointed. And to the saved, it says to us, we need to know how to defend our faith. We need to know how to walk in God's will and obey it regardless of the consequences. We need to know how to live in the truth and defend the truth and stand for the truth. And not just say, uh... I could call somebody at the church and they could answer that question. But we need to be familiar enough with our Bibles and strong enough in our faith and walking in the power of the Spirit that when we are asked to give a witness, we are prepared to do so. Charles Spurgeon said, Lord, save the elect and elect some more. I don't know who out there is going to get saved this week, but I know that this week I'm supposed to talk to people about who Jesus is and what he's going to do and leave the results to the Lord. 
Because salvation from beginning to end is all of God. I don't add anything to it except I'm the vessel, you're the vessel that he chooses to use so that people can hear good news. Let's stand, heads bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you if you're lost today.